Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, Vass here with the How To Academy podcast. This week's guest is the internationally best-selling historian Yong Chang, who I met a few weeks back to talk about the lives of the Sung sisters, three siblings who played a profoundly important role in the making of modern China. It's a story of high ideals, deep corruption and Machiavellian intrigue, and it's told in Yong's new book, Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister, which has just come out in paperback. I could not recommend it more highly. Here's the interview. Young Chang, your new book, Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister, explores 20th century China through the lens of the lives of three women, something it shares in common with your best-selling book, Wild Swans, which tells the story of your life and those of your mother and grandmother. Can you tell us about how you became a writer and historian? I was born and grew up in China, and I loved writing when I was a child. You know, when I was lying on the ground and staring at the clouds, I was making up stories in my mind about, you know, an imagined world behind the clouds. And I was making up stories to tell friends on our way to school. Now, but I never even dreamed of being a writer because in those years, nearly all writers were condemned in Mao's political purges. Some writers were driven to suicide, some were sent to the gulag, and some were executed. Even writing for oneself was dangerous. I remember writing my first poem on my 16th birthday. I was lying in bed, polishing the poem, and I heard the door banging. This was in the Cultural Revolution in 1968, and the Red Guards had come to raid our flat. So I had to quickly rush to the bathroom to tear up my poem and flush it down the toilet. And that ended my first venture in writing. But the idea to write never left me. And in the following years, I was exiled to the age of the Himalayas and worked as a peasant and as a barefoot doctor. And later I became a steel worker and an electrician. So when I was spreading manure in the paddy fields, when I was checking electricity supplies on top of the electricity poles, I was always writing in my head with an imaginary pen, but I just couldn't put pen to paper. Then in 1976, Mao died and China began to change. And in 1978, I became one of the first group of 14 people to come and study in Britain. Now I was in Britain, I could then write, but then the desire to write just left me because I had come to a completely different world and everything was different. And I just wanted to to soak up the the atmosphere of this new world. Uh, It was like landing on Mars, basically. And to write was for me to look backward and inward into a past I wanted to forget all about. So I didn't write for 10 years. In 1988, my mother came to London to stay with me. 
for the first time, she told me the stories of her life and stories of my grandmother. And, um, you know, when she started, my mother couldn't stop. She stayed for six months and she talked every day. And when I was out working, she would talk into a tape recorder. And when she left London for home, and she had left me 60 hours of tape recording. And when I was listening to my mother, I kept saying to myself, I've got to write all this down. And then I, I then realized that my mother seemed to know that I had this unspoken dream. And she was helping me to fulfill this dream. Um, because otherwise, you know, why would she be talking to the tape recorder? And so after my mother left, I sat down and transcribed her stories. And then I wrote my stories. And that's how I wrote Wild Swans. And Wild Swans, through writing Wild Swans, I became a writer. And then I went on to write a biography of Mao and then a biography of Empress Dowager Cixi, the last great royal ruler um, who brought China into the modern age. Now I've just written this, um, the stories of the three sisters, um, big sister, little sister, red sister, three women at the heart of 20th century China. Now, the three Soong sisters were very much um, known to you in your childhood, weren't they? They were discussed, their lives were gossiped over. What did everyone think they knew about the Soong sisters when you were growing up? Well, when I was growing up in China, information was strictly controlled. So we knew what the regime let us know. And the three sisters, out of the three sisters, two were anti-communist, nationalists, big sister Eileen and little sister Meilin, Madame Chiang Kai-shek. And big sister Eileen was one of the richest women in China, and her husband was Chiang Kai-shek's finance minister and um, prime minister. And they both fled China with their husbands, fled communist China with her, their husbands. So we heard all the nasty things about them. And we heard that um, little sister Mei-Ling used to bath in milk. And this was why her skin was so fine. And I, I remember one day a teacher and said tentatively, you know, do you really think bathing in milk is pleasant? Because the idea was, was that, you know, she, she lived in such outrageous luxury and she would bath in precious milk. And milk was regarded as something very nutritious and it would be fantastic if a child could have it. But of course, at our time, only the privileged could have milk. So she... We basically, we were told to believe that she was outrageous, the wasteful, you know, indulgent and so on. So this teacher then was saying that this wasn't true. But of course, he soon joined the ranks of the condemned so-called rightists. And today, the sisters are remembered in China almost as characters from a fairy tale. And before you wrote the book, that was how you thought about them too. Why is that? Well, they were, they were very famous because it's quite extraordinary that the three sisters married three very prominent men in China. Red sister, Qingling, the communist sister who stayed in China and became Mao's vice chair, was the one lauded when I was growing up in China. And she was given this position because she had married Sun Yat-sen, 
who was called the founding father of Republican China because he was the first person to promote republicanism. And little sister Mailing, as I said, you know, married Chiang Kai-shek, who was the nationalist ruler of China before he was driven out of China by the communists. And little sister Mailing was a first lady of China for 22 years. And that's also quite, uh, quite extraordinary, you know, to have two sisters marrying these two most important men in 20th century China. And big sister Eileen was um, one of the richest women in China and married Chiang Kai-shek's finance minister and uh, foreign minister. So it, I think the extraordinary marriage was the most important thing, why they were so famous. And also the fact, of course, the three sisters were separated by two antagonistic political camps. And the two sides, the nationalists and the communists, fought a really bloody civil war. And the two sisters were basically enemies. And yet they maintained a kind of good, amicable, and really sort of warm, in a way, relationship, although their relationship was inevitably complicated. So I think those are the two most important reasons why they were fairy tale figures and why people just don't get tired talking about them. Tell us a bit about the world that the sisters were born into. These were the final years of the Manchu dynasty. And their father, Charlie, was committed to the Republican cause. Yes, they came from a quite extraordinary family. Their father went to America as a kind of a laborer, but he escaped and ended up in the American South. And he was the first Chinese to have been converted by the Southern Methodists. And he stayed for seven years in America and that changed his life. And he adored America. And when he came back to China, he first was a preacher and then he went into business and made a lot of money. And um, he then used the money to give his children, his six children, three daughters as well as the three sons, an American education. So the three sisters were sent to America at the beginning of 20th century, which is quite extraordinary. In fact, when big sister went to America at the age of 14, she was the first young woman to go to America to be educated. Her two other sisters followed her. Little sister Mailing went to America as young as nine, and she spent 10 years in America and basically became more American than Chinese. And so that was their background. And then when they came back to China, they lived in that privileged world of Shanghai, a Shanghai elite. So quite divorced from the ordinary Chinese. And so that, and then they, because of their position, because of their husbands they married, they were right at the center of power. So Qingling marries the father of China, Sun Yat-sen, and that's how um, she becomes involved in the Republican Revolution. And Sun is often venerated as a bit of a saint. He's called the father of China. But your portrait of him is as a womanizing gangster with a Shakespearean appetite for power and violence. So can you tell us a bit about how the Song family became involved with Sun and about Qingling's marriage to him? Sun Yaxian has been and is still venerated in Taiwan. When people were swearing to take office, and they do so to the portrait of Sun Yat-sen. And in mainland China, which has just celebrated 
the founding of the Communist China on October the 1st, they erected a huge portrait of Sun Yat-sen in the middle of Tiananmen. And in the minds of many Chinese across the world, Sun was a saint. But through my research, I realized he was far from that. For his own power, he brought in the Russians because only the Russians were willing to build him a modern army, efficient army machine and to teach him all the Leninist uh, tricks of taking power. And for his own power, he brought in the Russians, which ultimately led to the communists and Mao coming to power in 1949. And in my books, I realized that he, he was not at all ideologically committed and he wanted to use the Russians for his own goals. And um, he had no other interest except power. And uh, after that, women. And he, he was married, but he then soon basically deserted his wife, but only saw her when, when you know, he happened to be in the same place with her and rarely saw his children. And for the other times, he had concubines and, and lots of other women. And he married Red Sister Qingling because the Red Sister had come back from America and she was full of idealism for Sun Yat-sen's cause, the cause of republicanism. Their father, Charlie Song, had helped Sun Yat-sen because Charlie was disillusioned with the Manchu throne and thought only republicanism could save China. And the Manchu throne, you know, was like a foreign rule because the Manchus were not indigenous Chinese. They had come from beyond the Great War. And so many people identified republicanism with driving out foreigners. And so when Charlie made a lot of money, he sponsored Sun Yat-sen. Now, Red Sister was very radical, even in her school days in America. And she then fell in love with the father of republicanism, quite natural for her. When she was barely in her 20s, when Sun Yat-sen was, um, uh, I mean, 40-something. And, but she, um, she, no, she want, really wanted to, she was full of um, adulation for him, and she wanted to die for him. And, but she was soon disillusioned. After their marriage in 1915, they had some years um, oh, yes, about their marriage, there was also something quite interesting because Charlie, by that time, had become disillusioned with Sun Yat-sen and had realized that Sun was not a, such a saint as he had imagined him to be. So he didn't want his daughter to marry Sun Yat-sen. So he and his wife locked Qingling up in the room upstairs in their house in Shanghai but she climbed out of the window and boarded the ship to Japan, where Sun Yat-sen was. And so they married. They were married there. And as I said, she, she was madly in love and was ready to die for him. But she was hugely let down. And in 1922, Sun Yat-sen got into a conflict with a rival of his. And um, they were surrounded by troops. And Sun Yat-sen fled, but he left his young wife to stay put and hold fort and to make the enemy believe that he was still there. So they, the enemy, his enemy started an assault against their house and Qingling nearly died. She had a hellish two days and two nights, and Sun Yat-sen in safety did not lift a finger to help her. And, and she, during the flight, her flight, she suffered a miscarriage, 
and was never able to have children, which means a lot to her because she was longing for children. And um, there were many other things and about Sun Yat-sen. In fact, I initially I wanted to write about him because I, when I was writing my previous book, which is the Empress Dowager Cixi, I had a question, which was, what happened in China in the forty years before her death and Mao taking power? Before she died, the Empress Dowager had decided to turn China into a constitutional monarchy with an elected parliament, and all sorts of preparations have been made. But then she died, and forty years later, Mao took power and plunged China into a totalitarian abyss. So, what happened in those forty years interested me very much. And Sun Yat-sen was the most important person in that period, and made the biggest difference to this transition. And so I wanted to write about him. And then after a while, you know, I just got bored. And he was like another Mao. You know, all he wanted was power. He would do anything to get power, and you know, his wife's death and all that. You know, it didn't matter to him. And then I, I just because I just written a biography of Mao, and I don't want to write a、um, biography of that sort of man again. And so I, I then gave up on the idea of writing about a biography of Sun Yat-sen. I wanted him to be part of my biography, but not a subject of a whole biography. But during this time, Sun Yat-sen's wife and her sisters grabbed my interest. And inspired me, and they were political, but they were not just political. They had many other aspects in their lives. They had heartbreaks, you know. They had the bravery, but they were also corrupt. They also had many faults, and loved luxury to the extreme. I mean, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, little sister, spent her later years in New York, and she had thirty-seven servants. You know, flown in from Taiwan,、uh, so I decided. That's how I decided to write a biography of them, with Sun Yat-sen and Chiang Kai-shek being part of their story. So Sun wasn't sincere in his enthusiasm for Leninism, but at the time that he pretended to become a Marxist, his wife Chingling really did become a Marxist, and after his death. Became loyal to Mao and the communists. Can you tell us about her life under Mao and how she became vice chair of the party? Because of her position as Madame Sun,、uh, Madame Sun Yat-sen, the father of modern China, as some say, and she had a unique position. And when she went into exile in Moscow. In 1927, she witnessed the power struggle of Stalin and Trotsky, and then later she witnessed the other Stalin's purges and back in China Mao's purges. And during those purges, her friends were persecuted, you know, sent to the gulag, or you know, some committed suicide. But she was not touched. And she was kind of untouchable, or she she could preserve herself because she was Madame Sun Yat-sen, and so being Madame Sun Yat-sen was of paramount importance to her. During her exile in Berlin, she actually fell in love with another left-wing nationalist, well, left-wing man called Deng Yanda, who wanted to form. A third party, different from the nationalists and the communists, and Deng Yanda had a whole reform program, and、um, was very close to her. And he was also a very charismatic man. In fact, Stalin had wanted to make him because he was left wing, wanted to make him the head of the communist party. Which Stalin had just founded, but Deng Yanda refused Stalin. 
He said he didn't believe in communism. That's why he fled Moscow to Berlin. And Red Sister Qingling fell in love with him, and they were madly in love. But she broke from him. And this was because she had to remain Madame Sun Yat-sen. If she was without that title, and she could not survive the political life in China. So that was, um, oh yes, after Mao took power, Mao treated red sister Qingling extremely well. She enjoyed singular privilege. A whole palace was given to her as her residence in Beijing. She also had a mansion in Shanghai and enjoyed servants and particularly the um, exemption from any purges and even in the Cultural Revolution. She was scared. She was so scared that she threw all her beautiful clothes and handbags and shoes into the stove. And she could hear victims' screams coming from outside her wall as the Red Guards were staging denunciation meetings. But she was not touched. And so she collaborated with Mao. She disliked the Cultural Revolution, but even when the Cultural Revolution was even when the Cultural Revolution ended, she didn't want to blame Mao. She blamed everything on Madame Mao. And very unusual for her language, she called Madame Mao the slut. So the post-Mao party line of blaming everything on the Gang of Four, upholding Mao's name and legacy, and she was very happy with that. Um, She was Mao's vice chair, and on her dying bed, she was made the honorary chairman of China. Chiang had Deng Yanda assassinated, which had a terrible impact, of course, on Qing Ling. Can you tell us about that? Yes, unlike Chiang Kai-shek, he had domestic program, a well-researched, well-conceived domestic program, centering on giving the peasants, who are the vast majority of the Chinese population, a better life. And um, so he had many admirers, particularly in the military, because Deng Yanda was in the military academy where Chiang Kai-shek was the head, the boss. And Chiang Kai-shek knew Deng's popularity, so he had him arrested, then secretly executed. Qingling when she learned this, she was so devastated because Deng Yanda was really the only person she fell in love with after Sun Yat-sen. And with Sun Yat-sen, she was totally disillusioned. In fact, later, she told, years later, she told um, Edgar Snow, you know, the American journalist who wrote Red Star Over China, which gave Mao and the communists a rosy picture in the West. Um, but Qingling told him when she was interviewed by him that she had not fallen in love with Sun Yat-sen. Now, but with Deng Yanda, she fell in love and Deng Yanda was then executed. And that turned her a most dedicated hater of Chiang Kai-shek. And that really made sure that she would do everything she could to bring down Chiang Kai-shek. And she even applied to join the Comintern, the Communist International. And she said she was ready to give it all. I mean, of course, to join the Comintern would expose her to really deadly danger because Chiang Kai-shek would not have forgiven her. But and she insisted, she thought that was the best way to, to beat Chiang. Um, and Moscow later realized this was a terrible mistake and kept her party membership a secret. But that the Deng Yanda's death was the key thing that turned Qingling into a dedicated hater of Chiang. And this was why she went to such lengths to try to beat Chiang. 
Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about little sister Mei Ling, who became world famous as Madame Chiang Kai-shek. The US adored her. She was glamorous. She was seen as a humanitarian. Tell us about her. She was a much softer person compared to her red sister. While her red sister embraced Leninism, and she was totally put off by what the communists were doing in the 1920s under the direction of Moscow. And this was why she went with and she sort of joined her life with Chiang Kai-shek's um, and the anti-communist Chiang Kai-shek's. Their union was a union of the like minds. And she was basically a softer influence on Chiang Kai-shek. And this was very important to the nature of Chiang Kai-shek's rule. Chiang Kai-shek basically was the first dictator of modern China, because after the royalty were overthrown by the Republicans, China enjoyed about 16 years of democracy. The presidents of China between 1912, the founding of the Republic in China, and 1928, when Chiang Kai-shek seized the power, China in this period was democratic and the presidents were elected, but that was ended by Sun Yat-sen's wars supported by Russia and then by Chiang Kai-shek who beat the Beijing government and seized the power and he became a dictator. And he's, he learned all these Leninism, Leninist methods of rule but little sister Mailing helped him becoming more, more towards the West. And he came to admire America and wanted to make friends with America. And later on in Taiwan, although he brought all these Leninist methods and so on to Taiwan as he practiced in mainland China, but he rejected communism, which meant that his rule was not nearly as awful as Mao's rule. And so Little Sister Mailing played a very important role in that. And whenever she could, she helped save people rather than persecute people. So she was very different from Mao's wife, Jiang Qing. And, and also she became quite religious. You know, she also suffered a miscarriage like her red sister and was never able to have children after that in 1927. And this was also because of the man she had married. And Chiang Kai-shek had started his political career through being an assassin. He assassinated a major rival of Sun Yat-sen's and secured Sun Yat-sen's power. And that caught Sun Yat-sen's eye. So he was able to become a successor to Sun Yat-sen. But because of his career of being an assassin, Chiang Kai-shek himself was pursued by assassins from left and right and the center, north and the south, everywhere. And some assassins got into their bedroom. And as a result of the fright, and little sister Mailing suffered a miscarriage and was never able to have children. She then went into a depression for the first seven years of her marriage to Chiang Kai-shek in 1927. And this was of course quite extraordinary. And Chiang Kai-shek wanted to pull her out of depression. So in 1932, he gave her a present, a birthday present, a necklace 
but it was no ordinary necklace. It encircled the whole mountain outside Nanjing. And I have a picture of this necklace taking from a, from a helicopter. And basically, Chiang Kai-shek imported these French plane trees and built the chain of the necklace with these French pine trees. And the pendant of the necklace is a gorgeous villa with green-blue tiles on the roof, which sparkle in the sun, looking like a real necklace. I mean, this was, that's what Chiang Kai-shek, you know, loved her. Their marriage remained a, a strong one. Basically, they had many ups and downs. Many times, little sister wanted to leave her husband. And when Chiang Kai-shek actually was being driven out of China in 1949, in the last year, Mei-ling was not with her husband because she wanted to leave him. She didn't want to go to Taiwan. But then she was torn and she she felt that, you know, to leave her husband um, at this crisis moment was bad form and um, it would be a present to the communists. So eventually she prayed and prayed. She was very religious. She and big sister were both very religious. And, and she prayed and prayed. And one day she felt this was in New York. She felt that God had spoken to her and asking her to go to Taiwan. And she went to Taiwan, and that move, of course, enormously raised the morale of Taiwan. And of course, made Chiang Kai-shek love her more. I mean, she she was she was devoted to luxury. She was she was hooked on luxury, a presidential style luxury. And after Chiang Kai-shek died, and she was worried that she might not get that luxury because Chiang Kai-shek's son and heir, Qin Guo, was famously frugal, lived very simply. So she was worried Qin Guo might not give her the luxury. But Chiang Kai-shek made, tearfully made his son promise to keep his stepmother in the style she was used to, so she never had to be worried. But of course, the story of Chiang Kai-shek with his son is so interesting. You know, Qing Guo was the man who, after Chiang Kai-shek's death, laid the foundation for Taiwan to become a democracy. And he did this partly because of his own experience. When he was 15, he was taken to Russia and he was kept there as a hostage by Stalin for 11 years. And Chiang Kai-shek was desperate to get his son back. Qing Guo was his only blood son and heir. And this meant tremendously to Chiang Kai-shek. So Chiang Kai-shek made a concession to Stalin, made a deal with Stalin, a tacit deal with Stalin, which was he let the communists go at a time when he could have wiped them out, particularly on the long march in the 1930s. So the result was the communists survived, they built themselves up, they then eventually overthrew Chiang Kai-shek and drove them to Taiwan. Chiang Kai-shek basically lost China, partly because of his son. And Qing Guo had a horrible time in Russia. He was sent to the Gulag when Chiang Kai-shek was harsh to the communists. And so he rejected all that dictatorship definitively. And he was the first person to turn Taiwan into a democracy. Chiang Kai-shek and Mei Ling built their own alternative ideology to communism called the New Life Movement. Can you tell us about the New Life Movement? Well, um, it was really um, not a, a very smart domestic policy. And the thing is, Chiang Kai-shek first conceived the idea of having a new life 
movement because he went to the communist occupied areas and saw how communist ideology had destroyed traditional Chinese values like you know sort of loyalty and a devotion to your parents you know during the communist occupation in parts of China in the 1930s employees were incited to kill employers in the class struggle basically Chiang Kai-shek hated class struggle he wanted to resurrect Chinese um, values against the ideology of class struggle so he wanted to launch a new life movement in mid-1930s now this was a time when mailing was just getting out of her depression and it became something she hang on to give her something worthwhile to do but for her the new life movement was more about manners i mean like many foreigners who went to old china they couldn't get used to the chinese you know some people would go naked half top in the top naked and the place was dirty people spat and people urinated on in street corners people talk loudly they talk when they were eating food they were shouting the left food all over you know all that sort of manners and the mating was in america for 10 years and she just couldn't get used to this real China. And she said it disconcerted her more than taking a plane, a small plane, and flying in fog, and not knowing where to fly. This disconcerted her more. So she was determined to make the Chinese behave in better manner to the Western eye. And so it's a kind of a combination of the husband and wife's um, ideas. And it was not well conceived and it was not certainly not the cure for China's problems. The leading liberal at the time, Hu Shi, actually said, you know, China's main problem is not manners, is Confucius said, you know, you have to give people enough food and enough clothing before you can teach them how to mind their manners. And Chiang Kai-shek had no intern domestic program about raising people's living standard. And this he regretted very much but too late, just before he was driven out of China, because the communists seized on this, and um, their propaganda always said that they were there to give people a better life. And so that, that was the new life movement. And yet both Chiang Kai-shek and Meiling insisted that the new life movement was Chiang Kai-shek's biggest political achievement, which was completely untrue. Although it was a benign thing, but it was not a, the cure for China's problem. It amounted to very little. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, let's talk about big sister, Eiling. She was Chang's most trusted advisor and also profiteered a vast fortune to fund the family's lifestyle. How did she do that? She was very smart um, her little sister, Meiling, said Qingling was by far the smartest person in the family. She said far smarter than herself. And she did have a very smart mind. I mean, you, know, you just see her essays, the essays she wrote when she was in school in America. She already had a very mature political mind and in her teens. And later, because Chiang Kai-shek couldn't trust anybody, and she was somebody that little sister Meiling admired, worshipped. Meiling did everything her big sister told her to do. Um, really treated Eiling like a, a mother. So Chiang Kai-shek listened to her. And um, well, the thing is, she would have being in the best position to give Chiang Kai-shek some good advice on domestic policy. 
but she had a fatal flaw, which was she had no empathy with the ordinary people. I mean, all her life, she lived in privilege. She had no feelings towards the ordinary people. So she didn't give Chiang Kai-shek any advice in this direction. But she had tremendous affection for her sisters. And she was furiously criticized for her corruption. And then eventually she developed a conviction that she was amassing this fortune and making all this money for her sisters, for her two illustrious sisters. And when red sister Qingling chose to stay in Mao's China and big sister knew in a communist country, you know, material goods would be scarce. And so she offered red sister, you know, whatever, she would want, particularly with little sister Mailing, who was addicted to luxury. I mean, she loved such luxury that even a government in Taiwan would not be able to support her lifestyle. You know, imagine dozens of people going from Taiwan to New York. How do they live? How do they eat? How do they have their holidays to join their families? And particularly, how do they cope with the astronomical medical bills in America? And so big sister Eileen footed some of the bills in fact, you know, it's quite interesting. Once I, I gave a talk at um, Oxford um, for this about this, the sister's book when a hardback came out. And um, an elderly couple approached me during book signing and asked me which sister was my favorite. <laughs> I said, uh, oh, well, I mean, you know, I, I don't really have one. They all have the you know, so on. Um, and the, the elderly lady said to me, very gentle lady said to me, she found big sister Eileen most simpatico uh, because of her attitude to her family. Anyway, so, <laughs> so you know, people's... Came at the expense of all the people that she stole from, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, uh, her, yes, well, the thing is, uh, her her rationality was that, I mean, it was a very corrupt regime, as all dictatorships are, inevitably. And um, if she didn't take, and she wouldn't say steal, of course, if she didn't take, other people would. Right. And uh, it won't help the regime. And Chiang Kai-shek, as a political figure, needed money. And she, her personal money would help Chiang Kai-shek's political career. And because during that time, you know, during the war, for example, Little Sister Mayling was constantly, she was very brave to start with. She was very brave. But she also, she could face death, but she couldn't endure hardship. So every now and then she would leave China to go to Hong Kong or New York to indulge herself. And big sister Eileen footed her bills. I mean, when she went on this triumphant visit to America, which established her name in America in 1943, when she addressed the Congress and got a standing ovation of whatever, 40 minutes, um, and got American to give more aid to China, she also went to America many months ahead of her visit and checked into this very top a New York hospital and occupied the whole floor, not only treated herself, but her whole entourage in that floor. Imagine how expensive. I mean, big sister Eileen paid for all this. I mean, but in a way, she also, Mailing also did good things for wartime China. She got America to give more money. And that's how big sister Eileen would see things. Mailing fought the emergence of democracy in Taiwan tooth and nail because she was worried about losing her luxurious lifestyle. Can you tell us about that? 
Now, after Chiang Kai-shek died, Chiang Kai-shek's son, Qing Guo, was the leader. And he paved the way for Taiwan to become a democracy. And little sister Mei-ling initially was worried um, about Qing Guo, but then she was reassured because Qing Guo had promised the father to keep her in style. But then Qing Guo suddenly died to everybody's surprise of um, diabetes. And uh, little sister Mei-ling then got very worried because the successor that Qing Guo had chosen, Li Denghui, who recently died and was, you know, very much admired in Taiwan, was regarded as uh, almost like the father of democracy in Taiwan, because Li Denghui made Taiwan fully democratic, and he became the first elected, democratically elected president of Taiwan. And um, Meiling was very worried because Li Denghui was a Taiwanese and had no loyalty, particular loyalty, to the Chiangs. And she was worried that Li Denghui might go for Taiwan independence and also might turn Taiwan into a democracy, in which case she could not have her lifestyle. So she then summoned the person closest to her, her niece, Jeanette, from a daughter of big sister Eilings, who was like a manager of Mailing's affairs. And she was called the general manager. Jeanette flew in from New York to Taiwan and um, took over a government-sponsored hotel, a big hotel, and that hotel became a base for mating, like basically like mating's kitchen, um, and supplied her with waiters and the cooks and entertained her guests, um, and plus other things. So, but I mean, mating tried various ways, political maneuvers. She made some attempts, but Taiwan was then ripe for democracy. And um, the Nationalist Party ignored her. I mean, they, um, they, nobody wanted her to meddle. And then she left. She was in her 90s at the time, but she was still going strong, mentally and physically very fit. Um, but she acknowledged defeat and she left Taiwan and left Taiwan's politics. And she lived in New York until she was 105, 2003, after 9-11. And so she didn't obstruct Taiwan's democracy. Young, thank you so much for telling us that incredible story. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. This week's show starred Yong Chang. It was presented and produced by me and edited by John Doughty. If you enjoyed it, we have an amazing live stream coming up this week that you might also enjoy. It's with artist and activist Ai Weiwei, Oxford historian Rana Mitter, and human rights advocate Sophie Richardson, all about the Wuhan lockdown and China's response to COVID. We also have a whole lot more global history and politics on How To Plus, our new all-access subscription service. You can find them both at howtoacademy.com. You can also join us next week on the show for something completely different. Matthew Stadlin in conversation with naturalist Philip Limbury, who will envisage a sustainable future for our planet. Until then, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. Listener.